Okay. So who was Job? Who was Job? What is his story? So the book of Job, or Hebrew, I'm going to use the Hebrew term, Eov. The book of Eov is one of the books of Tanakh, of our holy scriptures. Um, Tanakh stands for Torah, which is the five books of the Torah. Nevi'im, the books of our prophets, and Ketuvim, writings. So Eov is the third of the books of Ketuvim, the third of the books of writings. It's written in poetic form. Um, it's written as poetry, most of it. Um, and it's written in similar sentence structure to the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, and the book of Mishlei, the book of Proverbs. Together, these three books are known by their acronym, Emet, which in Hebrew means um, truth, stands for Eov, Mishlei, Tehillim. Um, and they're known because they, they, have its, uh, they have a little bit of a different sentence structure and um, then the rest of Tanakh, the rest of the books of our scripture. I have a quick question. Sure. When you say book of, is it like a separate book? <laughs> or I'm not sure what that means. Excellent question. So Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, um, has, is split into three sections, Torah, Nevi'im, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings. There's five books of the Torah, mm -hmm. um, eight books of the prophets, and 11 books of the writings. Each one's a separate book. Uh, oh. Now, there were scrolls where they put the whole Tanakh together. You have today books where you can buy the entire Tanakh um, kind of put together in one, but mm -hmm. it is, they are separate, they are 24 separate books. Okay. Thank you. So, Eov is its own book. Um, the, now, the Hebrew of the book of Eov is the most difficult Hebrew of any book of Tanakh. It's very poetic. Um, Tehillim Psalms is also poetic, and in Hebrew, so is Mishlei. But Eov has a much, much more difficult Hebrew. Um, it's really the only philosophical book in Scripture. There are other books of poetry, of singing praise to God, of proverbs or sayings. Of course, much of Tanakh is prophecy and stories. Um, hist historical um, information. However, the book of Eov is really a philosophical book. It's a book of philosophy. And it really discuss discusses the question of why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people. And the book is written as a story centered around a man called Eov, who's a good God-fearing man. He's very wealthy with many children. And then God gives permission to Satan to harm him and Eov goes through a lot of suffering. And most of the book is then a discussion between Eov and four of his friends about why Eov is suffering. And in these long discussions, they try to argue, Eov and his friends, why God makes good people suffer and why God makes bad people successful. And so this book is really addressing the very important question of why bad things happen to good people, why good things happen to bad people, how it can be. We believe in providence, we believe in justice. People often don't appear to be getting what they deserve. There's actually an English term for this, um, for this topic, theodicy, the question of why God does things the way he does things. Now, while we, the, the topic of the discussion Eov is very clear, the wording, as we'll see, is very, very poetic. And the arguments of Eov and his friends are sometimes very hard to follow and understand, uh, both because translating the words could be difficult, understanding the sentences could be difficult, and understanding their deeper meanings could be difficult. 
And as a result, commentaries, and there are dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of commentaries that are written on Eov, Jewish commentaries written on Eov, um, and they offer many, maybe even thousands, um, they offer many different explanations of what each argument is and exactly how the discussion went. So before we get into the details of Eov's story and the details of the discussion, let's first try to figure out who Eov was. So the book of Eov tells us that Eov, that Eov was a man who lived in the land of Uts. Now, the land of Uts doesn't exist anywhere else in Scripture. The book of Eov also doesn't tell us when Eov lived. There's no king at the time that we would recognize. There's no people that he's living among that we would recognize. Um, there's really no context given for us in Tanakh. So unlike, now most books of Tanakh have details elsewhere that are co that corroborate with each other to allow us to kind of put them in a context to know where they took place, when they took place. The book of Eov doesn't. In fact, the name Eov is mentioned actually twice elsewhere in Tanakh by the prophet Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel lists Eov um, in a list of important people alongside Moses and Daniel, um, but doesn't tell us who he was or when he lived, just kind of lists him alongside Moses and Daniel. Um, so we don't know anything about him, about where he was, when he was. There are many different views in the Midrash, and the Midrashim are the um, oral traditions and um, early commentaries um, on Eov and that address Eov as to who he was, when he lived. One scholar counted in the various Midrashim and, Tal um, and Gemara's Talmuds that uh, counts 14 different opinions as to who Eov was, when, where, and when he lived. Some say he lived in the days of our patriarchs, in the days of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. According to one Midrash, Eov actually married Jacob's daughter, Dina. Jacob, we know, had one daughter, Dina, um, and the Torah doesn't really tell us what happened to her. Um, and so according to one opinion, um, Jacob, uh, Eov actually was Jacob's son-in-law. Others say that he was a Canaanite. He lived during the time of Moses. There's a Midrash that says that he was originally a advisor to Pharaoh and was there at the time of the Exodus, uh, at the time that they were enslaved and um, left Egypt because he did not agree with Pharaoh's position of enslaving the people and moved to Canaan. There's other opinion that, opinion that says that he was a Jew and he lived in the days of the judges, which was the period after Moses, before King David. Um, others say, another opinion in the Talmud is that he was a Jewish leader at the beginning of the Jewish Second Temple period, which would be a much, much later period. Um, and then the Talmud offers one opinion that suggests that Eov never actually existed. It was a story created for the philosophical discussion, but it was not a, it was not a real story. It was a metaphor. It was a story created to allow the discussion to happen within the context of a story, as many philo philosophical books. So we don't know. We don't know the answer to when he was or where he was. Um, 
Today, interestingly, there are a number of places around the Middle East, um, in Lebanon, in Oman, in Syria, that a number of places where locals claim that there's a cave where Eov was buried, which would imply that he lived there. Um, Seder Hadoros, a um, Jewish book, a Hebrew book that was written about 400 years ago, writes that he has a, that the grave of Eov is found in Istanbul, in Turkey. Um, although we don't know where that would be today. Regardless, we don't know really who he was, where he lived, whether he was a Jew or perhaps a non-Jew, um, or even if he existed at all. We really don't know. Now, the story of Eo starts off with Eo being an Ishtam, a perfect person, Yashar straight, and Yireh Elohim, he was God-fearing. Now, it doesn't give us much detail as to how good he was, how wonderful he was, but in the Midrashim and in the Talmud, we're given a lot of detail about Eo's righteousness. He was very, very careful to keep away from anything bad and was always trying to do the right thing. Midrashim discuss, and the Talmud mentions, his great kindness to others. He was always there helping people in need. Um, he had an open door. We're told that his home had doors on all sides, that people could always find the entrance easily to come inside when they needed anything. He always helped people. He was honest whenever he bought things, we're told. He always added an extra tip just so that, just in case um, he was undercharged and uh, he wanted to make sure that he didn't pay too little for something. Um, and so he was a very honest, upright, and good, wonderful person. He has seven sons and three daughters, and he's extremely wealthy. He has lots of sheep, camels, cattle, and donkeys, lots and lots of animals. He's in the animal business, but he's an extremely wealthy man. And when his children would make parties, he would always offer sacrifices to God. He worshiped God, recognized God, a God-fearing, honest, wonderful individual um, who has a very happy life, happy family, and um, very successful. And then the book of Eov tells us that Satan then came to God. It was on the day, it doesn't tell us what day it was, but our sages say the day of judgment, which we know is Rosh Hashanah. And Satan came to God, and God pointed out to Satan how wonderful and special Eov was. Now, I should mention in passing that we do mention Satan over here, Satan, or Satan in Hebrew, is mentioned elsewhere in Tanakh um, as well, in the book of Zechariah. And uh, we do believe that Satan means the accuser. It's an accusing angel. Um, we do believe in the concept, of course, because it's mentioned in our Tanakh, in our scriptures. Um, other religions that believe in it got, it got the name and the idea from us. Um, although the way other religions may explain Satan um, is not the way we understand it. And uh, we did a class a little while back about the Jewish belief in Satan or in the accusing angel. And uh, it's on the podcast and uh, encourage anyone who wants to learn more to go, um, to go there and listen to it. So anyway, so God gives Satan permission to, uh, so God tell, points out Satan, especially Eov is, and Satan says to, that Eov is only God-fearing because he has everything he needs. If it was taken away from him, he would reject God. So God gives Satan permission to take everything away from anything he wants that belongs to Eov, but he doesn't have permission to touch Eov's person himself. 
So one day a messenger comes and tells Eov that his cattle and donkeys were taken captive. And as they're speaking, another messenger comes and says that a fire broke out and killed all the sheep. And as they're speaking, another messenger comes and says that the Castian Chaldeans came and stole all of his camels. And as they're speaking, another messenger comes and says that his children were together at a party at his oldest son's house and a storm came, made the house collapse and they all died. And so Eov has now lost everything he has, all of his money and all of his children. He has nothing left. So Eov responds by saying, I was born naked. I will return naked. God gives, God takes. Hashem noten, Hashem lakach. Yehi shem Hashem avarach. May God's name be blessed. That's how he responds. So he recognized whatever he had he got from God. God took it away. That's fine. And so God then says to Satan, you see, you took everything from Eov, and he remained righteous. He remained good. So Satan responds and says, yes, people are ready to lose all their money to protect themselves. People are ready to spend anything that they have in order to protect themselves. But so the people, your, themselves, that person is more valuable than their money. You didn't let me harm his person. If I harm him, Eov himself, then he will turn on you, God. So God gives Satan permission to harm Job himself, but warns him not to kill him, cannot take his life. So Satan afflicts Job, afflicted Job with, with Eov with boils from head to toe. And so he's sick, lying in the dirt, um, presumably to help with his boils. And Eo's wife tells him, turns him and tells him, ask God to let you die, to relieve you from suffering. And Eo refuses. He says, I will accept whatever God gives, whether good or bad. And it all comes from God. Whatever God gives me, I will accept it. So at this point, Eov's three friends hear what happened to him, and they come to visit him. His friends are Eliphaz HaTeimani, Teimani means Yemenite, Bildal HaShuchi, and so far HaNamasi. We don't know what Shuchai means or Namasi. Um, we don't know nations um, or places that um, connect to that. Um, Eliphaz is actually a name um, of one of Asaph's children, Jacob's brother. We don't know if it's the same individual or not. I guess depending on when Eov actually was, Bildad and Sofar are not common names. But anyway, these three friends come. They sit together in silence for seven days to comfort Eov for his losses and his suffering. And then they begin their discussion. And they're trying to understand how God allowed Eov to suffer and why in general good people suffer. Why bad people are, are, are successful? And the discussion involves all three friends. They go around one at a time. Each one gives their argument and Eov answers each one's arguments. Um, and as I mentioned, the wording is very, very difficult. It's Hebrew, but a lot of the Hebrew are words that are not used anywhere else in Tanakh. So it's hard to know what they mean. Um, they don't have, if a word's used in multiple places, often from context, 
um, for the way it's used in, in multiple places, you could figure out what it means. The words in EOF are not used in multiple places. Many of them, many of them are kind of one-time um, use or just used in similar context in EOF itself. So hard to know what they mean. And sometimes words with other from root words that were that we're familiar with, but used in unusual forms. Um, and so it's also very poetic. So commentaries offer many, many different explanations for each argument, exactly what each one is saying in each argument. Um, among the things that come up is the possibility that comes up repeatedly is the possibility that Eob is really a bad person. He pretends to be a good person, but his friends repeatedly suggest, maybe you're not as good as you appear. Maybe you've really done bad and you deserve all this. And it's something that they keep bringing up repeatedly and Eob repeatedly rejects pretty strongly. Um, another thing that comes up is um, God's control of our world. Does God control what happens? Does he not control what happens? Can God intervene or will he intervene? Um, the question of choice comes up. Is there choice? Is there not choice? At the end of this, the discussion between Eov and his three friends, a fourth friend, Eliu, shows up. He was quiet all this time, and then at the end, he offers his own views um, and mostly about how he believes that Eov is really not as good as he makes himself out to be. And Eov responds to him, um, insisting that, no, it's not true. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then at the end of this, these very long discussions, and it goes for well over 30 chapters, um, these discussions, um, God then appears to them and makes the point that I created the world, were you there when I created the world? And he goes into great detail describing creation and describes how God controls the world. You were not there. And um, Eov then responds to God, recognize indeed we were not, indeed we don't know, we weren't by creation and cannot understand creation. And then God concludes by telling the three friends of Eov to repent because they were wrong in what they had said. And uh, Eov, he says, had been right all along. And God then blesses Eov. And Eov is then healed. His wealth returns much more than before. He has seven more sons, three more daughters. He lives for another 140 years. Um, we know earlier in scripture, um, in, the early in, in the book of Genesis, people tend to live very long. Um, he lives for 140 years. And... Um, and he lives a good life for the rest of his life. So that's the story of Eov in very short, without having really covered any of the details um, of the discussion itself. Any questions? Yes, Bart. Okay. Oh, that was me. Um, is Eo a Job? Is that Job? Yeah, Eov is Job. Okay, yeah. so what's the difference there? I mean, who uh, are you just pronouncing it differently? So the Hebrew name is Eov. That's his Hebrew name. Okay. Uh, for us, Job. Tanakh has always been in Hebrew. I mean, we, we've always studied in the original Hebrew. Um, for whatever reason, over the years, when the Torah and Tanakh has been translated, translators change the name to fit with their languages. So okay. been, the Hebrew names have been anglicized, we can say. Danny has a question. Moses, becomes Moses and, um, you know, Yaakov becomes Jacob. 
and Adam becomes Adam, and Noah becomes Noah. So okay. Eov becomes Job. Now, how Eov became Job, I don't know. That's okay. Sandy had a question. Go ahead, yes, Sandy. Uh, I'm sorry, I must have uh, not heard you, but I didn't understand what this bargain, this deal was with Satan. What? what I mean, is there a belief in Satan that God had a, 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 a deal with Satan that he challenged him, that Job will... Uh, not be loyal when things go wrong. I don't understand that. Are you asking about Satan in general? What is Satan? Who is Satan? I'm asking you if in this metaphorical story, if if uh, God made a deal with Satan because he was challenged that Job would not believe in him if everything started going wrong. It's easy to believe in God when everything was going right. So that's my question. Was there some such some kind of bargain? I didn't understand that. I with don't the believe that. there was. Yeah. Firstly, I wouldn't say the story was a metaphor. There is such an opinion, but again, we don't know. Um, so I wouldn't refer to it necessarily as a metaphor. I mean, we, we don't know if it really happened or not. Um, I guess the story is still... I mean, the same, whether it did or it didn't. Um, I don't know about, I know Christians use this term, God bargaining with Satan. God doesn't bargain with anyone. Um, and God doesn't make um, deals with Satan either. Um, I don't think in the story there's any deal or bargain whatsoever. Um, Satan challenges God that yeah. Eov will be... Um, that Eov will change or will not be as good as he is if he suffers and God allows Satan to give Satan a chance to try. So you give Satan a chance. I wouldn't call that a deal, but he allows him to see what will happen. Um, and so, yeah, and th that's the way the story goes. Now, is that why God wanted Satan, wanted Eo punished in order to test him? Well, punished him with the wrong, wrong word. Is that why God wanted Eov to suffer in order to test him? Um, that's the whole discussion. Um, why Eov suffered? Um, so that's not necessarily the reason why God wanted him to suffer. In other words, Satan wanted him to suffer to test him. Um, did God want it for the same reason? It's not clear in the story. Again, that, that's that's the issue that they're debating. Yeah, we believe Satan. Mm -hmm. Uh, do. Now, about the belief in Satan in general, again, we, we did a class about it um, a couple months back, and uh, we have a podcast about it, and I encourage you to go um, go back to it if you want Thanks. to learn more. Thank you. Sure. Susan? Oh, uh, I, I kind of lost my train of thought. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> when you get, again, when you come back when, you're, when you got it. Don, do you have a question? Yeah. Uh, in general... Are we to take away from this story that uh, that no matter how difficult life becomes, if we continue our belief in God, we will overcome and he will bring us to uh, out of our morass and into a better place? That's exactly the discussion of Job, that, of Eov. That, that's the debate that they're having, Eov and his friends. Um, Will good things happen to good people or not? Um, I, I think that's exactly the discussion. But sometimes, would you answer, uh, would you answer Donald? Did you say uh, we agree with that, or is it unknown? 
That's the discussion. I'm going to get to some details of the discussion in a moment. I haven't really touched on it yet. But that is the discussion. This quest these questions are what's being discussed between Eov and his friends. Without discussion, the fact is that the story starts with him being on a, uh, a very prosperous and happy level, takes him down to the depths of despair and, uh, and loss of all material goods. And in the end, he re-rises to that original position or similar. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the story. Okay. Now, is that guarantee that everyone who's good will end up being good at the end? That, that's the question. Hey, people I'm banking on good. it. Good people get good <laughs> and bad people get bad or not. That's really the question. Well, sometimes out of That's not there what the rabbi said. No, he said. Sorry, I didn't hear. I said that that's not what you said. The, uh, I heard what Don said. He's banking on it, but that's I, not I, what you said, Rabbi. All right, let's, but, let's go further. I think, we'll, I think we'll get a better understanding as we go further, at least a little bit. I don't know how good, but we'll try a little. I'm <laughs> yeah. being facetious. So. Oh, okay. When I first obviously. I'm going to mute everyone again, um, and we'll, I'll open up for a discussion in just a moment. Let, let me, let's go a little further. So there are many ways, as I mentioned, to understand the discussion between Eov and his friends. Um, as I mentioned already a few times, it's, it's very cryptic and poetic and hard to understand exactly what's going on. Um, there are many, many, many commentaries written on Eov and each commentary tries to understand the details of each discussion, the, each argument that is being made again and again. Um, and there's, I think the Malbim counts um, 20, or so different arguments um, made by various, um, Eov and his various friends and God himself at the end, um, 20 different arguments being made and trying to understand each one back and forth. Um, and so I'm not gonna get in every, each commentary really gives a totally different understanding of the arguments and the structure. Um, and because it's so cryptic, there's a lot of different things that can be read into the words. So rather than going into the details of the, of the discussion and just um, trying to, you know, getting, which would take us a very, very long time, I just want to deal with the issue in general, the challenge of good and bad suffering, why bad things happen with, to good people and why good things happen to bad people. So firstly, this is a challenge in Judaism because we Jews believe there are two critical principal beliefs in Judaism. Number one, we believe that God created us, created our world, created everything in it, and people, of course, us, is aware of everything that is happening, is aware of what we do, and continues to control us and continues to impact and decide what is going to happen to us and to the world around us. And this belief of what we call in short, and he, the Hebrew term is hashkacha, or the English term is providence, this belief in providence, that God is created us, is aware of us, involved in what we're doing, decides what will happen to us, controls what will happen to us. This is an important Jewish belief, um, it's fundamental to Judaism, and it includes, it's of course fundamental belief in prayer. If you believe you can pray to God when you need something, um, that's because you believe that God is aware and is able to change things. 
So we do believe that God is in control and is aware, and we do believe in the concept of, in Hebrew, hashkacha, or providence. So that's one fundamental belief in Judaism. A second fundamental belief in Judaism is we believe that God gave humans free choice to choose to do good or bad. And God expects us to do good and not to do bad and will pay us back for what we have done. It's a belief in what we call justice, that God, we are responsible for our actions. We have control of our actions. We're responsible for our actions, and we will be repaid for our actions. It's the basis, basic belief in a natural or a God-given justice. And that's also central to Judaism. It's mentioned many times in the Torah um, that we are paid back good for good, bad for bad. Um, we can choose what to do. We should be, we are expected to do the right thing and paid back for what we do. So we believe in these two concepts, providence and justice. Those are two very important beliefs in Judaism. Now, if we believe in these two things, if we believe in providence, that God's in control of everything, and we believe in God's justice, that we have choice, we're responsible for what we do, and God pays us back for what we do, then that should lead to a reality where things are good for good people and bad for bad people. If you do good, you live a good life. If you do bad, you live a bad life. And in fact, the Torah seems to say that in many places. You do good, things will be good for you. You do bad, things will be horrible. However, in reality, we know that that is only sometimes true. It's not never true, it's sometimes true, but it is often not true. We know that bad things happen to good people. There are good people who suffer greatly. And we know that there are bad people that succeed. And so this is the challenge of why bad things happen to good people, why good things happen to bad people. If we accept these two beliefs in Judaism, the belief in providence, hashkacha, and the belief in justice, then, or in Hebrew, scharva onish, then if we believe in these two beliefs, then it doesn't fit with our reality where people, good people suffer all the time and bad people are successful. There are extreme examples of this that we often like to bring up to kind of bring, take it to the extreme, such as the Holocaust, 6 million people, many of them who must have been good, it's hard to imagine they were all bad, particularly a million of them were children. Right? Children can't do bad, even if they do, you can't hold them responsible. Um, and so that brings it, and there are many, of course, the Holocaust is just an extreme example of extreme tragedy, but there are so many examples of tragedy. We mentioned the slavery in this week of, of the Israelites in this week's Parsha, um, and it's endless, and it's also in individual lives, in the people we know, good people who suffer, bad people who are successful. Um, it's something that, that happens all the time. It's something that we see around us all the time. And so it's a big question, why, how can that be? How does that fit with our belief? 
So there's a number of different ways to resolve this. And the assumption of all commentaries is, of Eov is, that the discussion between Eov and his friends are using one of the various possible ways to resolve this question. Um, are, and the various friends are addressing the different ways they could possibly resolve the question. Some think that each friend has a different viewpoint and is consistent. Others say no, that the friends keep moving back and forth between various different viewpoints. But regardless, there's a number of ways that we can resolve this. And that basically divides into two different possibilities. One is we can reject one or both of the basic beliefs that we mentioned, or at least part of those beliefs that we mentioned. And the way we would do that is we would either say God is not aware of everything we do, or God doesn't have full control of everything, or God has control but chooses sometimes not to mix in when he doesn't, at times doesn't want to control everything. So in other words, we would, we would deny at least part of the belief in providence. Either God is unaware or doesn't fully control or doesn't, can control but chooses not to, um, but at least partially deny the belief in providence. One approach. Of course, it has many, many sub, uh, there's many details or many different particular perspectives we can take. He's not aware of what's going on or not aware of everything, maybe cannot control everything, can control, but chooses not to for various reasons. Um, so these are all various ways we can um, at least partially um, limit God, the belief in God's providence to allow us to resolve this apparent contradiction between our belief and reality. Or what we can do is we can, we can change at least part of the second basic belief, the belief in justice. We can believe that humans don't have full free choice. We can believe that um, God does not uh, we don't always, we're not fully aware of good and bad that we're doing. We can believe that God doesn't always repay good with good and bad with bad. God isn't always just, or God sometimes likes to do good to bad people and bad to good people. So we can remove at least part of the belief or adjust part of the belief in, um, in God's justice. Uh, and in that way, again, we can resolve this contradiction. So one approach would be to adjust our beliefs. If we adjust either the belief of providence or we adjust the belief in justice, we can resolve this contradiction between our belief and reality. That would be one approach, which as you see, can be subdivided. And there are many, many different particular ways one can resolve this in adjusting our belief. Another approach that we can take is we can keep our beliefs intact, believe that indeed God is aware of us and controls everything, full belief in providence, and believe in complete justice. We have free choice. We're in control of what we do. God pays good back with good and bad with bad. What we can believe, though, is that the reality is not what we see. 
And there's a couple different ways you can address that also. You can say the reality of people's actions is not what you see. People who are good are not really good. You don't really know what's going on. People who appear bad are not really bad. We can take a little more sophisticated argument and say that we don't really understand good and bad because things that are very, very small that we think is a minor bad thing can be for God very, very big. Or things that for us appears to be a very major good thing, a, a major bad thing could be very small for God. Same with good. So maybe we're not really weighing the good and bad properly to be able to really judge um, if people are truly good and bad. So we can ap approach the changing our own, our own view of reality by saying people who you think are good are not really good in God's eyes. People you think are bad are not really bad in God's eyes. Or we could change our perspective in what's happening to them. The good that's happening to them is not really good. The bad that's happening to them is not really bad. Again, we have a couple different approaches we can take this. We can say, yeah, they're suffering, but the suffering is only temporary. And it's in order for them to get so much good afterwards. Or yes, they're doing well, but the doing well is only temporary or superficial. They're not really doing well. Or in the long term, they're not going to do well. Or we can say the good and the bad is not really in this life. It's really in an afterlife. We believe in the soul being eternal. And so in this life, yes, the bad people appear to be doing well and the good people appear to be doing bad. But then in the next life, the reward for the righteous is going to be so much greater. It will greatly outweigh all the suffering that they had in this world. The the suffering of the wicked is going to be so much greater. It's going to greatly outweigh all the good that they had in this world. So in other words, the good that we're seeing and the bad we're seeing is not really good and not really bad. So those are, that's a quick, very quick overview of the many, many different approaches that we can take to resolve this question of theodicy of good of why good things happen to bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people again either we could adjust our beliefs one of the two basic beliefs in providence or in god's justice and we could adjust it by adjusting many many of the different details any of the different details of those beliefs or we could adjust our view of reality either by adjusting the way we view people being good or bad or the way we can adjust our view of reward and punishment or what's happening to people, it being good or bad. So that's just a very, very quick general overview of the various approaches that one can take. Um, and according to the various commentaries, um, just about all those approaches are taken by the, by the friends of Eov in the story. Um, they suggest that God's not really in control. They're suggesting that God doesn't really care to do good to good people. There isn't really justice. Um, that Eob isn't really good. He's really bad. Or that the bad that you're suffering is only temporary. You're going to get good later. You're going to get good in the afterlife. So all of these various arguments are all used by Eob and his friends throughout the discussion. Now, the most important issue in this discussion, of course, is what's the answer? Right? We can offer many, many different approaches, but the question is, which one is right? 
What's the right answer? So clearly the answer at the end is God's answer. God is right. So whatever God says at the end and God approaches, uh, God, God is the one that has the final say in the story, in the story of Job in the book of Eob. God has the final say. So it is God who has the right answer. But what is God's answer? So God's answer essentially says that, were you here when the world was created? And then he goes into great detail describing creation. Can you understand this? Do you see this? So there's a few ways to understand God's answer. Some commentaries see God's answer as saying that you don't really understand what's happening to you. So this would be the view, the suggestion that we said before, our view of reality isn't real. You think you're suffering, but really there's much greater good coming. Or you think that your things are good for this person, for this bad person, but really there's a lot of bad coming. So you don't truly understand what's happening to you. That's the way some Maimonides appears to take that approach. Um, that's the way some commentaries understand it. However, most commentaries don't understand it that way. The way most commentaries, and what we could say is by and large the consensus among Jewish commentaries as to what the final answer to this big question is, why the bad things happen, why the good to, to good people, why the good things happen to bad people, is God is saying, you don't understand creation. You weren't there at creation. And you have no way of understanding. Can you relate to it? Can you understand it? You will never understand my ways. And it's something that later God is going to tell Moses um, in a discussion later in a couple parshas forward. Uh, when Moses says, God, show me your ways. And God says, nobody can see me and live. And commentaries understand it the same way that there is no answer. We cannot understand God's ways. In other words, we believe that God is in control. We believe in providence. We believe in justice, that God is just, and God punishes people and rewards people for their actions. And at the same time, we recognize our reality the way it is. And there are true, good people that truly suffer and bad people that truly seem to have it good, that truly have it good. And we don't, and that's a contradiction to our, that contradicts our beliefs. We don't understand how that could be. God says, okay. your, your creation, so you never will understand it. It's something that only I understand. I have my reasons. I have my understanding. You people, you creations will never be able to answer this question. You will never be able to understand it. There is no, there is an answer for God, but there is no answer for creation. You will never get this. You're going to have to ultimately learn to live with this contradiction. Believing in God and justice on the one hand, but on the other hand, not always seeing it working out the way we expect it to. And not understanding why. Now, the book of Eov doesn't explain why God didn't just explain it to us or let us understand it. But later, Jewish scholars make the point that God doesn't want us to understand suffering, to understand why people suffer. Because we humans have a role to alleviate suffering. That's part of our job, part of our role in life. 
If we understood suffering, we wouldn't work to alleviate it. Because it's supposed to, you're supposed to be suffering. It's good for you. It's okay. <laughs> so we understand why they're suffering, right? We know why. So therefore, God created us in a way that we cannot understand. It makes no sense to us. We can never understand suffering. And therefore, we always work to alleviate suffering. Therefore, we learn to live with this contradiction. We learn to live with, on the one hand, believing that God is in control. Believing that when someone is suffering, it's not meaningless. It is meaningful. It's not just bad luck. It's not just um, for no reason or no purpose. There is purpose to it. There is reason for it, but we don't understand what it is or why. We're challenged by it. We struggle with it. And that's the way most at least understand, or many understand, God's final answer to Eo. We don't have really an answer to this question. Because we believe God created humans in a way that we'll never be able to understand it. Let me open quickly to some questions. I know we're running a little over time. Um, trust God, right? Trust, trust God, whether you understand or not. Trust that God is in charge and just have absolute faith and trust in God. Yeah. Whether you get it, what's happening, or whether you don't. Correct, exactly. Very well put, Marla. But why, if um, we all know that we'll never understand, why do we continue to ponder the issue? Can't we just, okay. That's an, excellent, that's an excellent question. We're human, and um, part of our humanity is that we try to understand everything, which is very important. We wouldn't be where we are if we didn't try to understand everything. Um, and we live with this inherent contradiction uh, which I think is the greatest contradiction in our lives. Um, and not only Jews, everyone, and to a certain extent, the belief in providence and justice is somewhat natural to the human condition. In other words, people believe that things happen with a purpose. We can't accept that things are just meaningless, even though some will say, I believe, you know, an atheist will say, I believe things are meaningless. We humans struggle, struggle to accept that. We, we naturally believe that there is purpose, there is meaning to everything that happens. There is justice. Um, and at the same time, we struggle with suffering. Um, so it's something we, I think it's the greatest issue that we struggle with as intelligent beings. Uh, I could tell you as a teacher, it's the one question that comes up repeatedly in almost every single class that I give. The question of theodicy comes up again and again and again. Um, because it's a question that really bothers us and we don't really have a good answer. So, of course, we're going to discuss it. Rabbi, what about the fact that um, bad, not everybody gets all bad and all good. So, you know, you may have suffering, you lose a child, but uh, that family has five more children or something like that. You know, there is bad and good to both bad and good people. Right. So that would be taking the perspective that the reality is not the reality that we see and what appears to be bad is not really bad and it's really good uh, or you have a lot of good. Um, Job took that approach at the beginning when he said, God takes, God gives, may God be blessed. Yeah. I was naked when I was born, I'll return naked. Um, everything I have is a gift from God. Um, I think it's fair to say that all of these approaches, at least the ones in how we approach reality, not the ones in how we approach belief, but the ones in how we approach reality have some truth to them. 
In other words, the belief that there's greater reward and punishment in the afterlife, the belief that we don't always see what happens to someone, the belief that um, we don't truly understand who's good and bad, we don't truly understand the value of our actions. And um, there's truth to all of them, but they don't they're not the ultimate answer. So they're all true and they're all uh, are mentioned in Jewish sources at different points. Um, and, but at the same time, they don't really resolve the problem. Sometimes you can like identify a person. That's a bad person. Why did they have such good things happen to them? But that's your perspective because you right. have- Ultimately, we don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. Only God knows what's in someone's heart. Absolutely. No, uh -huh. I mean, you yourself might have had an altercation with somebody and you say- Right, we often <laughs> see people from a bad perspective and if right. you get to know them, they're not really. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Right, right. But th this, I think this discussion is fair also people who are truly bad and there are people who we would, yeah. we are truly bad and, you know, had a good life. That's true. Clark? Yes, uh, Rabbi, and I, I mentioned this to you before and I think you've touched on it in this presentation, this concept that uh, in a prior life, uh, the person even uh, did something bad and therefore it's um, uh, reflected in the current life, even though you don't know about it, you don't, you're not aware of what happened in the prior life. And I heard that at a, a bond on the West Side. So that raises the issue of what we call Gilgal, which is um, often translated as reincarnation, but not really. Uh, we believe our souls, while we're not the same person as somebody else, our souls um, do make up for actions of other people. Sometimes we would suffer. And um, in Kabbalah, it speaks about this concept in great detail. Um, so yeah, and that would again go to the reality is not the way we see it answer, um, that what you think you're good, but there's really more to the story than you know. <laughs> yeah. um, which, which again is partly true. I think all of these have some truth to them, um, but isn't again the complete answer. Um, it'd be hard to use that to explain one million children who died in the Holocaust. So. It's partly true, all these things, but they're, oh, they're true to an extent, but they don't fully resolve the problem. Barry, did you have a question? No, it's, no? It's, really okay. it's, it's really interesting, you know, especially as I get older. <laughs> okay, so, let's, let, so let, let me conclude then. So the book of Eov really, the book of Eov really addresses the biggest question in Judaism, but the biggest question in life in general, not just Jews have this question, um, not only believers have this question. I mean, clearly it's a question for a believer, um, but everybody instinctively believes, um, as I mentioned a moment ago. And so we all have this question, um, but many religions, many cultures before, after, have been afraid to address the big questions, have been afraid to really deal with these big, big problems, big issues, big questions. And Eov, which is a very old book, um, according to the Talmud says it was written by Moses. That would be if he was in Moses period or earlier. Um, Moses, as we mentioned, uh, addresses this question in the Torah itself, uh, uh, directs this question to God, uh, the question of why bad things happen to good people and or why God does bad. And uh, it was written by Moses or written perhaps a little later. I mean, Eov was written almost 3,000, over 3,000 years ago or close to 3,000 years ago. Um, while it's a difficult question that doesn't really have a satisfying answer, 
we never shied away from asking the question and trying to understand. And so Eov is really a 3,000 year old discussion on the most difficult topic for, hu for humanity. And it's something that we've continued to discuss ever since. Well, perhaps more than anything, Eov shows us um, not only to the actual details of this discussion, which is important, but the need to address these questions. We all have these questions. We all struggle with these questions, every person. We need to address them, not ignore them, not push them away. Central to Judaism is asking questions. We're open to any question. We're open to addressing anything. Everything, this, every question is legitimate. Every question deserves to be addressed. And that's why 3,000 years ago, we already have a detailed, lengthy book written on this topic. And since then, we have many, many, many Jewish books, commentaries on Eov, and independent Jewish books that were written to address this topic of why bad things happen to good people and other Jewish philosophical topics. We have many books on Jewish philosophy trying to understand the big questions of Judaism. And these are questions we should all study, shouldn't be afraid of, and should be prepared to address, should be prepared to talk about. Elie Wiesel, the famous um, Nobel, um, Nobel, Nobel Prize winner, and Holocaust survivor um, dealt with this question really extensively in his books. He struggled a lot in his life with the Holocaust and God and dealing much of his life, he dealt with this question. Um, and his books, he deals with this extensively. And so one of the books he wrote was, he actually wrote a play called The Trial of God. And it was based on a true story apparently that he witnessed um, it's about a group of Jews in Auschwitz who decide to put God on trial for the Holocaust. And they have um, a tribunal, a Beth Din, a Jewish court with lawyers on both sides, a uh, prosecutor accusing God and they have a defense on behalf of God. And um, they have, it's a couple goes for a couple evenings after work. Um, and at the end of the play, the judges come back with a verdict that the um, God is found guilty, guilty of crimes against humanity. And then one of the judges call out, it's dark outside, it's time for Marif, time for the evening prayer. And this theme is something that Elie Wiesel brings up again and again, but it's really a theme of Judaism. We Jews have always been comfortable with paradoxes. God is guilty for the Holocaust, and yet we then begin to pray. We start with our when we start our prayers. We've always been comfortable with paradoxes. Life is full of paradoxes. So we need to learn to get used to them. You can't ignore them. Ignoring them doesn't work. You can't brush them aside. You need to learn to recognize paradoxes in life and deal with them. We have all sorts of paradoxes in life, but perhaps this is the greatest. We, learn to, we need to learn to address tough questions without shaking our faith at all. When we're afraid that addressing a tough question will shake our faith, then we don't discuss it. We're scared. We don't want to deal with it. It's challenging. But when we know that we will pray the evening prayer, whether we find God guilty or innocent, we're not afraid to put God on trial. 
We're not afraid to ask these questions. We're able to conclude that we don't know the answer and then continue going. If our belief in God and the Torah, if, in, if we believe it to be true with unshakable faith, then we're not afraid to discuss it. We're not afraid to debate it. And we Jews have always taken that approach. We have a strong belief, strong Jewish feelings. We strongly believe in the Torah as being true. And therefore, we're not afraid to discuss it and explain why we believe it to be true. We're not afraid to debate it. We're not afraid to freely address tough questions, like this question of why bad things happen to good people without shaking our faith. Addressing these questions, if anything, only strengthens our faith. It helps us gain a better understanding as to what we believe and why we believe it. So the book of Eov not only helps us understand this deep question of why bad things happen, why God allows for bad things to happen, but it also perhaps teaches us a lesson in the Jewish perspective to addressing questions. We are, we're open to questions. We're open to challenges. We're open to paradoxes. It's okay. We can live knowing that, just as we can live knowing that we love somebody, even though they maybe have a lot of challenges, there might be a lot of things about them that we don't like. Um, we all have that, someone who we love, we don't like a lot of things about them. We can the same way learn to live with other paradoxes in life and learn that we believe in God, believe in providence, believe in justice, and yet cannot understand why people suffer. We can believe in it and yet, and, and yet discuss it and yet try to understand it and perhaps struggle with it. And that's okay. It's important to discuss things. It's important to understand things as best as we can. And yet at the same time, recognize we won't always truly understand. We don't have the answers for everything. Not always does every question require an answer. And to conclude, there was a great scholar um, in the early 20th century called Rabbi Yosef Rosen. He was known as the Rogachava Gaon, the genius from Rogachava, which was the town that he was born in. And um, the Rogachava, as he was known, um, is considered, widely considered, um, the greatest Jewish mind um, of the 20th century. Um, and um, absolutely brilliant. And he, he wrote many, many response. People write him questions from all over the world. Um, he died in the 1930s. People write him questions, questions from all over the world and he would always respond. Um, he, he had thousands and thousands of letters that he wrote to people responding to various questions on Judaism. And what he would do is he never really used to kind of explain in detail the question. He would always write in point form um, and write the answer, look here, you'll see this, look here, you'll see that. And his letters are usually just a bunch of references. Um, he has books, there's many, many books of his works published, they're all references. And then you've got to figure out exactly what he meant. So they say that one time someone wrote him a letter, they had a certain question. And they concluded the letter on a question on something that they had studied. They concluded the letter, they cannot continue their studies because this question is bothering them so much. And so the Raghachava wrote back in his letter, a letter with again, a bunch of references as he usually would do. And so the fellow looked in those references and he couldn't find anywhere in those references that his question was addressed. So he wrote back to Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the Raghachava, saying, I didn't see my questions addressed anywhere um, in, these, 
in these references that you gave me, please elaborate. And Rav Yosef Rosen wrote, I sent you a bunch of references of places where Jewish scholars, Tosfos and other Jewish scholars had asked questions and not answered them. And they continued their commentary. They continued their book. And I just wanted you to know that it's okay. You don't have the answer. It doesn't mean you should not be able to continue. You've got to keep going, even if you don't have the answer. And that's always been our Jewish approach, our approach in Judaism. We always love questions and always ask questions. We don't always know the answer. It's okay. We keep going. That's our approach to theodicy, um, to this question of why bad things happen, but really our approach to life in general. So, so I think I thank you for oh, thank you for joining us um, today. Um, 